Tuesday, March 6th, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Allen. Joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Stock Advisor, Jason Moser, and from Motley Fool Inside Value, Joe Mager. Gentlemen, happy Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday. Yeah. It, it feels like kind of a regular Tuesday. I know in the political world it's Super Tuesday, but here it's just... The market's not feeling so super. Yeah, not so yeah. super on well, I live in D.C. where I get taxed, but I don't get to vote. I'm not represented. <laughs> you got to come on over to the Commonwealth of Virginia, my friend. I'll come back at some point. All right. Uh, we have got strong earnings from yet another retailer, and we will get an update on how robots are methodically taking over the world. <laughs> but we are going to begin uh, with several stories regarding oil. And let's start with, uh, frankly, the uncertainty in the world of oil. Uh, there are growing concerns that Iran may be building a nuclear weapon. These are concerns that could lead to military action by Israel. Joe, I'll start with you. Iran is the third largest exporter of oil in the world. Not to be crass about it, but what does all of this mean for investors? Well, even the threat of warfare is going to drive up oil prices here, because if there was a war that broke out, you would see resources shift away from production of oil. I mean, just rationally speaking, if Iran is in a war, they're not going to be producing as much oil, and they're not going to be shipping as much. So you would see prices spike. The trickle-down effects on that are higher gasoline prices, which obviously, you know, ding your wallet and ding corporate profits across the board. Jason, how important is Iran's oil here in the U.S.? You can't draw a direct line from them to us. Uh, You know, we get our oil uh, mostly from Canada, Saudi Arabia. I mean, we are our own biggest producer. Yeah. But I mean, if you're looking at like, I think the the question when people see this headline is, do we get our oil directly from Iran? I mean, the answer is no, not directly. Now, when you think about the the countries that do get their oil from Iran and then the countries that we deal with, I mean, you see, for example, Europe has has more or less refused Iranian uh, exports to this point because of, uh, you know, the inflamed situation there. And so you see with globalization how while there may may not be a necessarily direct line, uh, there is a line that sort of goes around <laughs> and still connects us in, in some way. So, uh, Joe, back to your point about you know oil prices spiking because they're 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 down uh, from last week. I mean, last week it was like one hundred eight, one ten. Today it's around one hundred and five and change. So, so down slightly from that. But if we do see a spike, obviously the big oil companies, the Exxon Mobiles of the world, the Chevrons of the world, they're going to benefit from higher oil prices. But what are some companies that are sort of off the radar that will also benefit from higher oil prices? Yeah, well, I would say the bigger oil companies would actually be the ones that benefit least from a price spike. And that's because they're so diverse. They have strong balance sheets. And those are good things that normally, if I'm taking like a 20-year perspective, that's what I want out of my oil investments. But if I'm just trying to play, and we don't really do this, but if you (laughs) were trying hypothetically to play an oil price spike, the way to do it would be companies that have more leverage to it. And that could be you know, small explorers and producers, or, you know, you bounce a step away. <clears throat> Companies that provide services to producers. So you could look like a Diamond Offshore, for example, which is a deep water driller. Um, they are deeply levered to the price of oil. If you saw oil spike, those shares would go up in a big way, but vice versa. Um, then you could look kind of a ratcheted down risk profile, but do like a Schlumberger, which is the biggest oil field services company that pretty much covers every part of the spectrum in terms of production and services. Another great company that, you know, has upside on an oil balance. 
Jason, what do you think? I like his play on some of these service companies. I mean, there's a company I follow called Gulfmark Offshore that essentially provides all the fleet services for the big oil companies and drillers to get out there, bring supplies back and forth, get these drill rigs. So they have set choppers, up. right? Uh, no, actually, that's, I think, uh, Bristow. I'm talking okay. Gulfmark has just ships. Uh, but, um, you know, I think another thing to look at, too, is with the price of oil, if the price of oil goes up, price of gas goes up. I know we talk about this all the time, is looking for substitutes, something other than oil. So, I mean, with natural gas prices so low right now, all of a sudden, natural gas starts looking a little bit more appealing. And I think that's why we're, we're seeing, uh, you know, more news about natural gas today as well. BP has reached a $7.8 billion settlement uh, with the, uh, on the Deepwater Horizon spill. Um, BP could still face as much as $17.5 billion in government fines, um, billions more in criminal penalties. Um, first, Joe, what do you think of this initial settlement? Is this, is this, a, is this a good thing for BP that it's at least this part of them is uh, this part of the situation is behind them? It's mostly good because it wipes away a lot of uncertainty. There's still a lot of questions out there in terms of litigation with Transocean and Halliburton, their partners on the well, um, you know, who owns what responsibility. So that's a big question mark. But removing this component not only takes that question mark away, but it's also a goodwill builder here in the U.S. and around the world where a lot of people are still, you know, kind of shaking their fists at BP and upset with them. And this shows that they're willing to play ball a little bit and just trying to get this whole episode behind them. Now, kind of the downside is they took the anti-Exxon play here. Exxon is extremely hardcore in court. And when the Exxon Valdez spill happened, they fought that for almost two decades. And the payoff is that they didn't have to make the payoff for a very long time, whereas you're looking at BP shelling, shelling out all this money early on. I mean, there is a time value of money component here. And if they could have spread this cost over, say, 10 years, you know, if you're a shareholder, you're probably saying, well, I would have preferred we paid this out a decade from now instead of today. But doesn't the fact I mean, that's that it's- a little, you know... Doesn't cold, the, but no. But doesn't the fact that it's behind them? I mean, we say all the time that the market hates uncertainty. I mean, if you're yeah. if you're a shareholder, you know this. The, at least this part of the uncertainty is behind you. Yeah, it helps, and it also sets precedence for solving the rest of the individual court cases that come up. And you know, at this point now, you're basically just working through the issues with you know potential Clean Water Act fines. And once they get that locked down, the, the story is mostly over with the exceptions of the suits and countersuits against their partners. Jason, what do you think? I think that there's still going to be plenty of litigation to come up from this, but I do agree with Joe. Them kind of getting out in front of this quickly, I think, really helps set the standards so that they can sort of wrap this up a little bit more quickly, even even down the road as the inevitable lawsuits come in. You know, I think uh, it... It's tough to say that they've really set the standard, so to speak, but I think that people are going to be looking at this five and ten years from now when the next oil spill happens, not if. I mean, we have to accept the fact that these, these things are going to happen. Sure. So I think they've certainly maybe you know, provided some, some guidance going forward. So with this settlement, uh, let's go back to BP's stock. Does this Again, they still have other possibilities ahead of them that they have to deal with. But in terms of having this behind them, does this make BP stock more attractive, uh, less attractive, no difference? What do you think? More. And you saw the stock move up a little bit on the news, as it should. I mean, it's just one big check off the list of major issues facing the company. 
Jason? Yeah, I don't. It makes it more attractive from a risk perspective. I mean, mm-hmm. it's obviously lower risk now. I think it was most attractive, you know, like a year ago when there was still so much uncertainty out there and the prices were still, the share price was still getting getting hit. So I'd probably, if I was looking to buy into a big oil company, still look elsewhere to something like Exxon. But but yeah, I mean, it's it's a little bit lower risk now. Joe, you mentioned the Exxon Valdez. You actually have a little bit of oil from the Exxon Valdez spill on your desk. And like not just lying there on your desk, like in spilled a, on my desk in a little vial. Why, like what? What's I, the story I, I used there? to cover oil and gas for Fool dot com, and I was just cruising eBay one day and saw that, and I was like, "That is such a bizarre, <laughs> freaky thing." And it was for sale on eBay, a small vial of it, and I was like, "I'll take that for three dollars." <laughs> uh, U.S. automakers are hoping to cash in on natural gas. USA Today is reporting that both GM and Chrysler will will offer pickup trucks that can run on both compressed natural gas and gasoline. Ford is rolling out trucks with engines from Westport Innovations, a maker of natural gas engines. Um, guys, right now there are about 112,000 natural gas vehicles on the road in the U.S. Jason, I'll start with you. Is this you know, we talk about electric cars frequently. Is Should we instead be talking about natural gas? Is that the next big thing for automakers? I don't know that it's the only thing we should be talking about. I mean, we know T. Boone Pickens is out there with clean energy fuels really pushing to bring natural gas to the trucking industry as a whole. So this seems to be like a natural progression going from the trucking industry to things like trucks. Uh, you know, clean energy fuels is still really building out the infrastructure for natural gas. And the biggest hurdle right now, well, two big hurdles, I think, really, is number one, convincing people that it's actually worth doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, convincing someone to go out there and buy a natural gas vehicle. Uh, and then number two, really building out the infrastructure that can support it, because as it stands right now, we still don't have that. I mean, certain areas of the country where it may work right now, but until we can actually get an infrastructure where you can gas up your natural gas vehicle anywhere, I think it's going to be really, it's going to be a tough sell. Joe, clean energy is one of the largest producers of compressed natural gas. Um, They're quoted in the USA Today story is talking about, you know, on average, their customers are paying $2.59 a gallon. Um, That's about a buck 20 less than straight up gasoline. Um, That's now, though, when when we're, as we've talked about, natural gas um, very cheap, very low. What happens? Because part of the value proposition here is, hey, if you pay more for one of these types of cars or vehicles, um, you're going to pay less in gas. Um, what happens to the value proposition if all of a sudden, as we expect at some point, natural gas is, is going to be going back up? Right. Well, this is exactly what happened with ethanol, where a few years ago, corn prices were low and oil prices were high. And everyone had the idea, particularly people in Iowa and uh, campaign managers, yeah. <laughs> had the idea of, why don't we turn more of this corn into fuel? So we started pushing ethanol in a hardcore way. And initially, part of the early case for ethanol was that it was cheaper than oil, and ultimately leading to gasoline. But what happened was that, ironically, when you started making these substitutions, exactly mm-hmm. what you would expect would happen was corn prices increased substantially. And... You know, oil fell for reasons other than fuel or money switching to ethanol. But if that had played out, you would have seen oil fall in response to that. And basically, you would have seen kind of an offset. And the original reasons we would have dogpiled into ethanol would have proven very short-sighted and not worth it. Now, let's just draw one more parallel here. I mean, it's a little bit... uh 
of the same. I mean, really, if you think about when gasoline prices were still relatively low and Ford and you know, GM were selling SUVs at the yin-yang and people yeah. were buying them because they could fill them up for no problem. Right. Um, gas prices spiked and, you know, people can't even afford to fill up their cars because they can't afford that much gas. So, I mean, the same kind of principle would apply here with natural gas if, so, if it were to happen. So, who do you think, Jason, has the most to gain or lose um, if by natural gas really gaining traction with automakers and with consumers? If it takes hold with consumers and with automakers, then I think you're looking at you're looking at sort of a twofold here. The the biggest natural gas producers out there in Exxon and Chesapeake stand to gain. Mm-hmm. Uh, clean energy fuel stands to gain in really building out that infrastructure. Um, as it stands right now, I think that's sort of putting the cart before the horse. I mean, it, it's not even really it's not even really been adopted into the trucking industry as a whole yet. So until we can get it even that far, I don't even think it's realistic to to go to consumer vehicles. And so right now, I'd still be looking at companies like Navistar and Westport and Cummins yeah. as they work with clean energy fuels to try to get this rolled out to the trucking industry sort of one step at a time. Joe, where do you think we are 10 years from now? We've, As I said, we've talked about electric cars and, and their potential viability. Do you think 10 years from now we are looking at um, – um, more electric cars on the road, more natural gas vehicles on the road, uh, or something else altogether, or or <laughs> hoverboards. You know, if if Back to the Future is any indication. Yeah, I think somewhere in between, but realistically, just only a slight variation from where we are today. Um, there is a huge installed base for oil and gasoline here in the U.S. And what you're more likely going to see instead of a wholesale change in the installed base that we have is incremental improvements in fuel efficiency, both brought on by car manufacturers and by the government nudging them to make that happen, but also improvements in in technology along the lines of hybrids. Um, That's part of fuel efficiency, but I think you're going to see more along those lines. You know, I know Jason's a fan of plug-ins, but, you know, we've had some success with hybrids, but then you have... uh, the Chevy Volt made by GM, which has been a total bust, you know, and it got great press. Yeah. Uh, North American Car of the Year, uh, GM threw plenty of press behind it. Everyone knows this car exists, that it gets great fuel efficiency, and there are subsidies in buying it. But it still didn't take off, so it just shows that it's going to be a long time before you see kind of conventional autos get replaced out here in the U.S. All right, let's move off of oil and gas. Uh, shares of Dick's Sporting Good up a little bit this morning. Fourth quarter, uh, fourth quarter earnings up 27%. Uh, Jason, I know it's a company you follow. What do you think? Great quarter. Great quarter indeed. Yeah, I mean, it was... Uh Jeez, what do you say? This is a company I really like. I like their specialized nature. I like the in-store experience. Um, I know we kind of shudder to use the weather excuse all that often here, but I think in some cases it's it's legit, and here it could be. We saw excellent performance from their Golf Galaxy stores mm-hmm. um, thanks to warmer winter. I mean, the fact is when it's warmer, people are getting out there playing a little bit more golf. Uh, you know, last quarter we saw there's some concern in that their cold weather gear might not perform so well because of the warm winter. Right. It, I, I think, to me, Dick Sporting Goods is a little bit more of a proposition for the warm weather as opposed to the cold weather anyway. So, uh, sales per square foot are improving. Same store sales were up and really excellent performance from e-commerce as well. So, a lot of good things happen. We will wrap up with This Week in Robots. IBM's Watson Computer (laughs) will soon be providing financial advice. Citigroup announced it has hired Watson to analyze customer data to provide personalized recommendations. Uh, We talked about this last year. I got a lot of snarky comments (laughs) on that one. Uh, Well, we talked about this last year when uh, WellPoint uh, hired 
Watson to help with healthcare data. Joe, what do you think? I think this is great for IBM because <laughs> it's a way to leverage all their research. They plowed a lot of money into Watson, and you're starting to see this pay off. And I think you're going to see a lot of different avenues where they monetize this. Yeah, if you're city, okay, sure. They have the pockets, deep pockets, try an experiment like this and see what happens. But if if they can, if Watson can analyze data that quickly, and I saw one stat, it was something like 200 million pages of data in three seconds. Something I definitely absurd, believe yeah. Watson is smarter than your average <laughs> financial advisor. Absolutely. But Jason, don't you think Bank of America and others are watching this and, and looking at ways that they can increase efficiencies and possibly even provide faster personalized recommendations to their clients? <laughs> Bank they hired R2D2. <laughs> <laughs> I think Bank of America's got a lot more uh, a lot more to worry about right now than just efficiencies and they're trying to figure out exactly to shore up their balance sheet. But you know, I think that uh, this is gonna provide an excellent scapegoat for the next financial meltdown. I mean people are just gonna blame <laughs> You know, just going to blame Watson. Watson? Yeah, I didn't do it. Watson did it. So I mean, it's you know, I think it's great for IBM. I mean, it shows that they're thinking forward. They're trying to figure out new ways to to uh, you know bring computing technology into the world. I mean, it's no surprise. IBM's one of Buffett's big four, one of Berkshire's big four holdings, and yep. um, you know, I think they're going to just continue to lead the way with innovation. So it's it'll it'll be interesting to see how it all works out. One of the other threads of this story is companies like Microsoft and Google trying to essentially create their own version of Watson. And the notion that in Watson, IBM also has not just great technology, they also have this great marketing edge. We've seen this with hospitals marketing the fact that they have the Da Vinci machine, and that's great for intuitive surgical. I mean, is, uh, Joe, I know you're sort of scoffing at this story in general, but I mean, is, th- is this just one more plus for IBM and its shareholders that Watson gives them this great marketing edge? Yeah, it is. And it gives a face, so to speak, or a name to all their R&D efforts, which are so substantial. And they outspend so many people on R&D. They consistently get the most patent awards by our neighbors next door at the U.S. Patent Office every year. And, you know, there is a lot of legitimate long-term business value in that. And wins like this validate that in the public eye and with shareholders. It's going to be really bad when someone hacks Watson, though. WikiLeaks or something. I mean, it's just going to be a mess. Uh, our final robot story, and frankly, in my opinion, our most disturbing one. Uh, DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, unveiled a new robot called the Cheetah to, uh, that can run 18 miles an hour, shattering the previous record for a, a robot with legs. Um, this thing can run a mile in 320 Three minutes, 20 seconds. It was developed with Boston Dynamics, a private company, and I'm quoting here, working with DARPA to create robots that can outrun and evade humans on foot. Well, that's a relief. (laughs) One more step to the rise of the machine. I was going to say, I mean, the robot revolution, we're we're just closer and closer to our robotic overlords, aren't we? I don't remember 3PO being that fast. (laughs) I mean, that's... I, I, I'm running a. I mean, Joe. Back in the day, you you ran a pretty fast mile, but not a three twenty. Do you think I'm trying to figure out is a golf cart faster than this thing? Like, if you get this thing running next to a golf cart, I mean, can a golf cart outrun it? Well, you're the golfer miles in the an room. Hour, I'm just I, trying to figure out how fast the golf cart goes. Where well, we get into trouble is when these things start, you know, mating together. Like, if you put Watson <laughs> with this, you know, super cheetah robot, and then the other one that eats meat. I swear, this is a real thing. There's a robot that cons- they're working on that consumes meat. You put this together, we got problems. Who is it's work- basically the robot dog the robot, 451. The robot, a robot carnivore is what you mean? Yeah. 
Who is working wow. on a carnivorous robot? <laughs> I've seen it. Well, I haven't seen the robot. I've seen this on the web. It must be true. Why do? Why would you? Why would you work on something like that unless you were? I don't know, Doctor Evil. I don't know. That's a good question. Why are they working on super fast evil? I'm. I'm just saying it's evil. I assume it's evil, but this little cheetah robot. Jason, do you have? Uh, I don't know. Do you have a task that you want? Uh, if if we could create, if we could get the folks at DARPA and Boston Dynamics to just work on a robot for you know around the house, that kind of thing. Oh man, if I had Dishbot a robot, nine thousand. <laughs> If I had a robot to do the laundry, that would just be so gold. Okay. I mean, that's probably eight to ten loads a week off my plate. Laundry for you, and as Joe said, the uh, the Dishbot 9000. I think we'll, we'll, we'll get them working on that. Joe Mager, Jason Moser, guys, thanks for being here. Thank thanks. you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.